Good morning, everybody. So glad that all of you are here. Um, I, I know that those of you that have been here for the last several weeks know what today is all about. And if you don't know that because you haven't been able to come or because you're just a, our guest today, um, you wonder, what's this, what's this God first thing? And I'll tell you that what it is, is it's a generosity initiative that started with uh, our recognition that we needed to build a permanent, a permanent church facility. We've been renting here for, oh goodness, I think it's 13 years or something like that. And uh, we know that we need to build a place of our own. And when we started thinking about doing that, we said, well, why don't we make sure that we put this building that we're going to build in the most strategic location possible so that as many people as possible who live in our region will know that we're there and it'll be, it will be uh, accessible to them. And we realized that's going to be really expensive to do that. What a challenge this is for our church. And that all just got us into this whole big thing about like, how do we do this in a way that we don't just like drain people of money? And so what we decided to do was to have this generosity initiative, this, this, uh, w- this starting point of our relationship with God, because we know that one of the things that God wants to build in our lives as we grow to be more like Jesus, which is his purpose for us as Christians, is generosity. So let's study what the scriptures say about that. Let's go through a spiritual process where generosity comes out of us naturally or supernaturally as, as we allow his word to kind of go to work in our lives. So we've been talking about the heart commitments that we have to have for that to happen and the vision we need and, uh, and also just the practical generosity um, that is a part of that. And kind of our theme verse for the whole thing is Matthew 6.33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and he will give you everything you need. That's the passage of scripture. It's an amazing passage. That's the passage that we're really basing this whole thing on that we are putting him first and trusting him to care for us um, as we do that. And today is really the culmination of that. This is the day when we make decisions about what commitments financially we're going to make to this initiative. And you've seen that, um, if you haven't done that yet, that others have. You just saw kids that did that. You saw uh, that teens have done that. Um, there's actually a banner back there on the ba- in the back um, right in, at the God First Hub, and there's a bunch of stuff where, where kids have put their stars on there as an indication that they um, have made commitments. And I, I got to peek at some of, the, um, some of their commitment cards, and my favorite one, well, they have a little star on the inside where, where they get to write what it, what, com- what it is that they want to give to God. And one that just kind of I, I, I really loved, I don't even remember who it was because I wasn't really looking at names, I was just seeing what they said. And this, this young kid said, my life. That's what he put in the star. What do you want to give to God? My life. It's like, bam, that's it. That's what we're trying to do um, as adults. And, um, and, and all the financial stuff that we're doing is all just a part of really giving ourselves to God. And so um, there, are, there are many in this room who have actually done this already. We had something called an advanced commitment night um, a couple of weeks ago. And um, several people have already made commitments based because they were just ready to go first. And we made a little video of that and asked them if they would share with you, why, you know, what, how God was working in their lives and how they decided what they were going to do. And so we just want to show you a few of their stories up here. So watch this video with me. Look at the sparrows. They're clothed. They're fed. They have shelter. If I do that for them, how much more 
do I do for you? And I think about that, and that's the kind of God I want to be first. I was recently involved in a couple of organizations, Portland Night of Worship being one and JFM being another, and I was gearing up to become a sound guy for them and to run sound for some of their events. They asked me to. I went out and spent pretty big money on expensive sound equipment and a digital soundboard. Did one concert, it was great. I was just thrilled. I was doing this for God and I was giving it to Him. And then both of those organizations kind of dissolved, fell apart, and now I've got this expensive piece of equipment that I can't use for God. So I was thinking about just getting rid of it, selling it, it's taking up space. And as though God stepped right in front of my face this evening when I was hearing other people testify, and he told me, here's your chance to use that for me one last time. So I've decided that it was just as clear as can be, I'm going to sell that and give the money from that to this project. As I was considering how to materially live this out, I had a number in my mind, and today I went to see my financial advisor, and we had lunch together, and she said, um, well... <laughs> Okay, and um, she helped me to see ways that I could give what I had in my mind. And when we finished our lunch, she agreed that that was a good number. So um, that is stretching, and um, but it was confirmed by my financial advisor. So that is putting God first, and then He will bring um, the the filling of those those gifts in whatever way He wants to. And um, I look forward to to whatever he's going to do. God, this God first comes at a time when for our family with three little kids at the stage of life we're in, um, all reasoning tells us to save, 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 pay down debt, pay down debt, pay down debt. And um, it's caused us to have to wrestle with whether we really trust the promises that God made that um, if we put him first, including in our finances, will he really take care of our needs? And will it really pay off a hundredfold like he promises? And are we really willing to bleed for what God cares about most? And so that's what we've been wrestling with, and that's what, what putting God first means for us right now. In 25 days, I'm going to be debt-free. Um, pretty stoked about that. And, you know, I really, I don't think it's a coincidence um, that, you know, I'm making all these decisions about my new life with all this financial freedom, you know, while the church is going through this God-first process. I just, like, I just know that God is going to do something amazing um, in us as a church and then through us as a church. And I'm just so thrilled that I get to be a part of it and not just you know, sitting on the sidelines. I'm not afraid of what, what the future holds because he holds the future. And so I'm just blessed to be a part of whatever he's doing. I think that Greg and I decided God first before we ever moved to Maine. We decided that this area is so unreached for Christ that we were willing to do whatever the Lord wanted us to do in order to reach people in Maine. So for us, in the beginning, it was leaving family and friends in California. And now, eight and a half, nine years later... It means really thinking about the whole financial piece. We've got kids in college, another one that wants to go to college in a few months. Um, we're dealing with retirement issues, and, and 
Greg and I really had to do some some thinking, some praying, some, a lot of talking. And um, tonight's fun because tonight I was able to just do it with joy. And I'm excited for what he's going to do because there are so many people that we need to reach for Jesus. And this is how we're going to do it. So I'm excited. Man, I, I, I love um, the way the Spirit of God has worked in unique and yet overlapping ways in so many different people's lives. And um, no doubt, if you've been here during this series, the Lord's been speaking to you too. And I, I'm just trusting that He's going to do that one more time as we study His Word together, and then that you're going to be able to, to respond at, at the end of that. And I also know that there are people here who, haven't, who aren't a part of White Pine. There are some people here who are a part of White Pine, but for whatever reason, God just hasn't led you to engage with this. And if that's the case, um, I just hope that what, what we're studying in the scriptures today will help you to grow in your personal relationship with God. Let's just pray for a minute before we get into this study. Lord, thank you that you have a purpose for all of us being here, that you want us to grow um, closer to you. If there's anybody here who's not a Christian, we know that you want them to see how great Jesus is and what he's done for them. Uh, For those that are Christians, I know that you want us to become more like Jesus. And we trust that your Holy Spirit will work uh, through what I say and what all of us hear, and that stuff will stick inside of us that will grow like a mustard seed and really make um, dramatic changes in our lives. We're trusting you to do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the films that was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar in 2016 was Room. Uh, It starred Brie Larson as a woman who had been kidnapped seven years earlier and was now raising a five-year-old son fathered by her kidnapper. Uh, The mother and her boy were living in a locked, windowless, 10-foot-by-10-foot shed. That's where she had spent the last seven years, and that's where her son Jack had lived his whole life. Room, as he called it, was all he knew of the world. And so when his mom tried to explain to him that the world was bigger than that little room, Jack just couldn't comprehend it. Uh, She reminded him of a mouse uh, that, that he had seen in the room, and she said to him, you know where he is? He's on the other side of this wall. And Jack said, what other side? And so she held her hand up like this, and she, and she said, there's two sides to everything. See, we, we're on the inside. Mouse is on the outside. And she explained to Jack that um, on the other side of that wall were people and oceans and trees and cats and dogs. And he said, no way. Where do they all fit? She said, they just do. They all fit out in the world. Jack said, you're just tricking me. She said, no, I'm not. I I couldn't explain it before because you were too small. You're five now, and you're old enough to understand what the world is. And he said, I want to be four again. As I watched that mom trying to explain to her son that there was so much more to reality than what he had ever experienced, I thought, that's what I feel like every time I try to explain to people what the Bible teaches about heaven and eternity. 
I'm telling these people who have never before experienced either of those things that they are nonetheless very real and that God wants us to live in anticipation of and even in preparation for the life that's going to open up to us the moment that we walk through the door of death to what's on the other side. That is just so incomprehensible to us that many of us choose to live as if this world And this life is all there is. And when your perspective is limited to 80 or 90 years on planet Earth, one thing that seems far more significant than eternity will reveal it to be is money. The mentality that having more money makes life better so saturates our world that to suggest that the best use of it is to invest it in that which will last forever just doesn't compute. Like, for example, we're challenged to make financial sacrifices, to build a permanent church facility in a strategic location so that more of the 50,000 people who live in our region can find and follow Jesus. I'll be the first to admit that it just doesn't make sense to do that if this world is all there is. Only if eternity is real, only if heaven and hell actually exist, only if there really is so much more outside this little room we are in, does it make any sense to take that which everyone around us is using to improve their lives here and invest it instead in making life better there for us and for those who will spend eternity in heaven partly because of our generosity. That is the risk that we are taking. And here's the plot twist. When we go all in on living for what is on the other side of the wall, we discover that it makes life on this side better too. Because contrary to what our society and even our own instincts tell us, the pursuit of wealth will take you where no one wants to go. That's what 1 Timothy 6 is going to teach us. The paragraph that begins in verse 6 of this chapter. Did I tell you we're going to look at 1 Timothy 6? I just realized I didn't say that. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, find that. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, And if you don't have either a Bible or a Bible app, I'm going to show you the verses up on the screen as well, okay? And we're also on page 48 in the, in the booklet. I didn't tell you that either. But 1 Timothy 6 is where we're at. And the paragraph that begins in verse 6 of that chapter really should be preceded with the words, spoiler alert. Because what the Apostle Paul writes to Pastor Timothy in this paragraph really upends everything we think we know about how to increase our quality of life. In verse 5, Paul warns Timothy to watch out for crooks whose motive for providing spiritual instruction is to make a fortune off of gullible Christians. And then, starting in verse 6, he contrasts their greed with a totally countercultural posture toward money. Here is what he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain or great wealth, as the New Living Translation says it. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
Contentment is that feeling that you get when you have enough. Not too little, not too much, just enough. Have you ever had a really great meal? And, I mean, it was just wonderful. And then you, you, you eat that last bite and, you, and you, just feel, you just feel, like, satisfied. It's like, man, I, I, it, that totally satisfied my hunger. But if I had to eat one more bite, I'd probably be uncomfortable. I'd be overfull. That feeling is contentment. And contentment is what we feel after we discover that what God provides for us is all that we really need. Remember how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used the full bellies of birds and the stunning beauty of wildflowers to assure us that God will feed and clothe us? And Jesus said, you don't have to pursue those things. God knows that you need them. Just seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and He'll give you everything you need. In other words, putting God first. That is, making His kingdom and His commands our priority. That is something that we can do passionately and fearlessly because He will meet all of our needs as we do that. In his many years of ministry, Paul, he he had all kinds of different financial uh, circumstances. His, His provisions varied from nothing except food and clothing to much more than those bare necessities. And he said in Philippians 4 that he had learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. His happiness gauge was not hardwired to the elevator of his financial ups and downs because he had learned that contentment, which is what all of us want, is not something that money can buy. Rather, it's a gift that is given to those in every tax bracket who live with and in and for Jesus. In fact, verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says the pursuit of wealth is a catastrophic obsession. There are several biblical examples of people who experienced ruin and destruction and grief because they put money first. There's Solomon, the richest man in the world, who said in his old age, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Whoever loves money, this is the richest man in the world who said this, whoever loves money never has enough money. And then there's the fortunate farmer that Jesus told us about who had a bumper crop and decided that rather than being generous with the excess, he would just build bigger barns and hoard it all. He said to himself, you're set for the next several years. Take it easy. 
eat, drink, and be merry, little knowing that he was about to die and face a God who does not take kindly to selfishness. Jesus told that story right after he said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And there's the rich young ruler, a man who sincerely wanted to know how to obtain eternal life. But when Jesus told him to sell his possessions and give to the poor, he went away sad because he was not about to give up his wealth. That's when Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me be clear about this. Neither Jesus nor Paul condemned wealth. Some people become wealthy incidentally. Not because it's their primary goal, but it's just a byproduct of something else good that they are trying to do. Others have a knack for making money, but they also have a passion for making life better for others, and they use their wealth to achieve that good goal. That's not what Paul's talking about here. And look very carefully at verse 9. Who is it that falls into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction? It's those who want to get rich. Look at verse 10. What is a root of all kinds of evil? The love of money. And who has wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs? Some who are eager for money. See, it is those who put money first that experience ruin, destruction, and grief. Much better to put God first, to seek His kingdom and His righteousness, and then to enjoy what He provides for those who have their priorities straight. That's Paul's advice to those who feel the tension between God and money those two masters that cannot be served simultaneously. But what if we're already wealthy? What if, whether we amass our wealth in in good ways or bad ways, we have more money than we need? What does Paul instruct Pastor Timothy to say to those who are rich? The paragraph that begins in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6 tells us, Now, I know that when I talk about what God wants to say to those who are rich, many people just click right off. They go, that's not me. Many of you are thinking that right now. I'm not rich. And I know there's a vast difference between the richest person in this room and the poorest person in this room. But wouldn't you agree that um, whether you're rich or poor is really a relative question, right? Proverbs 30 talks about three categories of people. Those who are poor those whose daily needs are met, and those who are rich. So in a sense, anyone who has more money than they need, if they have anything that's not really necessities, but actually kind of starts to bleed into luxuries, that person is, is, is rich, according to that passage. We've all heard about the top 1%. Have you ever wondered how much you'd have to make to be in that club? Well, it depends. To be in the top 1% relative to other Americans, you would have to make more than $300,000 a year. 
But do you know what annual income puts you in the top 1% worldwide? $32,000. So by global standards, most of us are pretty well-to-do. So just for the sake of argument, just so that we can get maximum benefit out of this passage, let's say that all of us are relatively rich. What's God's word to us? Look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or, as other translations put it, proud, conceited, high and mighty, full of themselves. Don't be arrogant. And command them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, let's just stop there and make sure that we get what Paul is saying. What does he mean when he tells us that we should not put our hope in wealth? Well, it could mean that we, we, we shouldn't trust that wealth will make us happy or, more likely, secure, because wealth is uncertain, he said. Proverbs 23 says, "'Cast but a glance at riches.'" And they are gone. They will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Whether we lose our wealth in this world because of misfortune, or we lose it in our transition to eternity because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, wealth is fleeting. And Paul also may be telling us not to think that that wealth is a reward for righteousness. That was actually a very common misconception in the ancient world. People thought, well, the way that you can tell who who has God's um, approval is those who have the most money. And this is why when, when Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, the Bible says that his his disciples were astonished. And they asked, well, who then can be saved? Their thought was, if even those whose wealth proves that they are among the top 1% in righteousness, if they can't make it into heaven, what chance do the rest of us have? Jesus replied, with man, this, that is salvation, is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. In other words, the passing grade that we cannot earn on our own, God can give us as a gift. That may be one reason why Paul says, don't put your hope in wealth. You put your hope in anything other than God, and you are not going to make it into the kingdom of God. Put your hope in God. And then he says this about God in the last part of verse 17, that he richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Can I just say that I think those words are often misinterpreted? Usually, I hear them quoted when someone is trying to justify luxury. They say, well, you should never feel guilty for enjoying what you have spent your money on because the Bible says that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. But I don't think Paul is saying that everything we own was given to us by God for our enjoyment. 
I think what Paul is saying is that you don't have to be rich in order to fully enjoy life because God provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. What makes life enjoyable is not material possessions, but God-given blessings, food, clothing, relationships, romance, nature, worship, recreation, rest, sharing. Those things that make life better are available to everyone, not just those who are rich. And knowing that should really lower our defenses and free us up to respond joyfully to verse 18, where Paul says to Timothy, command them, command the rich, command those who have more money than they need to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That's a verse that really doesn't need an explanation. It's crystal clear what God wants us to do with the wealth He has blessed us with. Don't hoard it. Share it. Invest it in other people. Of course, that's going to begin with your family, but it shouldn't end there. It should spread out to bless your neighbors who are poor or lost. Actually, there is a way to transfer wealth from this life to what's on the other side of the wall. And we just read how to do it. Do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. Why? Because, verse 19, in this way we will lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. How strange those words must sound to those who think that this world is all there is. Paul says, hey, you know that money that you have, that you have been told can buy you a better life? You know, if you just purchase this, travel there, indulge yourself here, room will be better. It's not only a lie in the short term, but but it's also tragically short-sighted because just on the other side of that wall, just through that door that all of us will soon pass through is a world that is bigger and better than you can possibly imagine. And the reason you have what you have now is so that you can invest in eternity. You can make life after death better by living generously instead of self-indulgently in your life before death. You can take hold of the life that is truly life. Rather than squandering your wealth on that which will soon be gone, you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Hey, I just want to be real transparent with you right now. I don't get a kick out of raising money. I certainly did not get into ministry to be a fundraiser. I got into ministry because I wanted to teach the Bible. And so I would never ask you to give sacrificially to something like a building project if not for the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that if you give generously 
with the right motives, love for God, love for those who are lost, then your life and their lives will be better now and forever. I really believe that. It's why uh, Robin and I have chosen to give sacrificially to this initiative. And it's why it would be inappropriate for me to be apologetic about asking you to give. This is not an obligation. This is an opportunity. We've been preparing for it for the last six weeks. And now is the time to make a commitment. Um, I'm just going to remind you one more time about what it is um, that we are doing. We are choosing to put God first in the way that we invest our resources by giving generously and sacrificially for the next two years to one fund that will allow us to do two things. First, to invest in ongoing ministry expenses at the same level that we are right now. And second, to set in motion our transition to a permanent facility in a strategic location, a location that is easily accessible to the 50,000 people who live in this region that we believe God has called us to reach. We do have a financial goal, but it's not, our, it's not our primary goal. Our primary goal is 100% engagement. What we've been asking of God is that he would work in the lives of every single person who calls White Pine home. That commitment, chair, uh, commitment card that was on your chair um, when you came in is designed to help you kind of just think through um, what, you're, what you're currently giving if you open it up and you look, look on the inside there on that page that has the gray at the top and the white at the bottom, the gray is a, a worksheet. It, you can say, well, what have I been given in the past? What kind of a new commitment would, I, would, commitment would I like to make for the next two years? Do I have any stored resources that I want to add to that, like a one-time gift? And all of that adds up to a number that you're going to be putting at the, on the bottom of the card on the line that's right there. And then um, I'm going to ask you also, in addition to that number, to put your contact information, your name and contact information. And I want to make sure that you understand why it is we're asking that of you. It's not because we want to know how much you give. The fact of the matter is there's only going to be one person in our church who knows what you give. God will know, but only one human being will know because we have to have somebody put the numbers together um, so that we can, do, we can do budgeting, so that we, if we need to do financing in the future, that we have that number for that. Um, we're also going to... Um, Write it down so that you're going to have a, the opportunity to track what you're giving over the next two years. But um, that's, that's all for your benefit. It's not, it's not for us. I, I am not going to see it. No pastor, no elder is going to see it. Some people like that. Some people don't. But that's just the way we do it at White Pine. And um, I want you to know that. So it's, a, it's an act of trust for you to put your name on the card. We need for you to do it because we can only count the money that actually has a name connected to it. Okay? That's how we know well, we're going to be able to budget for the next couple of years. So please trust us with that and, and just um, put that on there. Hey, before we do that, can I just give you a, a couple of minutes? I just want to have a quiet time for a couple of minutes because we're all kind of in different stages of this and some of us just need a little more time to pray, maybe to whisper to our spouse, just to reflect on what we want to do. So I'm just going to give you a few minutes right now to do that. This is just a, a time for you to be one-on-one with God, Okay. All right, if you need more time, feel free to take it. We, this is, we're not hurrying through this, but at whatever point you're ready to bring this card up um, to the front, we just have a basket on e- down at the... Oh,
end of either aisle. And if you'd be willing to put this card in, this is really just for you and God and as a way for you to kind of seal this for yourself. And also, there are candles on either side of the basket, and we're just going to ask you to light a candle after you have a major commitment. You'll notice that some of the candles are already lit, and that's because at Advanced Commitment Night, many people have already made commitments. So those candles that are lit represent those who have already done that. And you're going to be adding to that this morning. So whenever you're ready to do it, um, just bring the card up to the basket. Um, remember to put um, a number and a name at the bottom and, uh, and light a candle. And you can go back to your seat. Just leave the candle right where it is here. Thanks. This is a really special moment. And to see family after family and individual after individual coming forward and turning in those cards that have been prayed over and talked with God over for, for so many weeks now. And to just know that God must just be beaming with pride over his children this morning. And I'm excited because God takes our sacrificial giving and he does things beyond our physical, tangible giving. God can can multiply what we give exponentially and do the most amazing things. We can't even imagine what God is going to do. But God has a plan for our giving this morning. And I would just say that for me, you know, choosing what God told me to do, it, it changes my, my five-year financial plan. It changes my financial plan for the rest of my life. And I love that because I want God's plan for my life, not mine. His plan is so much better than my plan. And so I choose God. I'm choosing to say, God, you are first in my life, and I don't care Um, what I have. If I have you, I have everything. Everything. So praise God for what he's doing. Praise God for what he has done this morning. This is a celebration. We're following a great God together who has great plans for his church. And we're going to see it together. We're going to see God do amazing things together. Thank you for saying yes to God today. I, I love this church. I love my church family, and I love what God has called us to together to help people find and follow Jesus. God is going to build his kingdom right here. There are people out there right now, they have no idea what God has planned for them, and that this morning, what happened here in our family together, in our family room, that is going to shape the way that God builds his kingdom all around us. Amen, church? Amen.